What would it take to lure you away from church? Not a specific church, but church in general. What would it take to get you to just drift away and not come back? Well, last year, Pastor Jim Davis and Michael Graham published a book called The Great Dechurching. It's based on what they say is the largest and most comprehensive study ever commissioned on people leaving the church. And from their study, they learned that over the past 25 years, 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church at least once per month now attend less than once per year. Now, that shift is larger than the number of conversions during the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and the totality of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. What we're witnessing is a religious shift that is both seismic and rapid. And one of the misconceptions that Davis and Graham dispel is the idea that people leave the church primarily because of bad experiences. The top reason people stop attending church is not hypocrites, money-grubbing ministers, or even predatory priests. The number one reason they left, get this, is because they moved. In fact, roughly Three-quarters of the people who left the church did so casually for pedestrian reasons, including moving, the inconvenience of attending, kids' sports activities, or family changes like marriage or having a new child. That's all it took for the majority of those 40 million people to leave the church. Now, you know that the problem here isn't really about church attendance. Church attendance is just a symptom of a far deeper problem. This is a problem of the heart, what it loves and what it seeks. The problem is misplaced and disordered affections. The author of Hebrews knows that. He does urge his brothers and sisters not to neglect attending church. You'll see that in chapter 10, verse 25. That's critical for the life of the believer, but he is more focused on the danger of drifting away from the faith than he is drifting away from the gathering. Of course, the danger that his brothers and sisters were in was certainly more substantial than football season or the hassle of getting the kids in the car on time for church. The people to whom he's writing are growing weary. They are struggling and facing the possibility of yet another wave of persecution. So this letter, or if you will, a sermon, is a word of encouragement to the author's brothers and sisters to not drift away from the faith. And Josh introduced the solution to that tendency last week. We need to listen to Jesus. This week we get to drill down into the author's argument for that. First, though, let's recap the first four verses. Long ago, says verse 1, it might help if we put it 
in parallel. So you can see verse 1 and verse 2. It really makes what the author is doing here clear. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, think voices, visions, even angels, God spoke. And he spoke to the fathers and he spoke by the prophets. But now, verse 2, in these last days, again, God has spoken, and this time it is final. He has spoken to us, and he has spoken to us by his Son. This Son is the royal heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. In fact, he is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. In the words of the Nicene Creed, He is the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth. The Son upholds the entire universe by the word of His power. That's our Lord. The author here is not wasting His words. Each and every one is crafted with razor-sharp intention that His brothers and sisters and you do not drift away. Verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, reader is, the writer is establishing beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus is most highly exalted. And this forms the foundation of his exhortation. Because of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and where Jesus is now seated, you must listen to him, lest you drift away. I want you to see the whole argument here. He's about to bring angels into the mix. And then he'll show from the Old Testament that Jesus is superior to them. And then he'll urge his brothers and sisters to pay attention to Jesus. That comes in chapter 2, verse 1. And there's a lot more to be said, but that's the overarching flow of the argument. But why angels? He introduces angels in verse 4, and why? He says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why is he bringing angels into his arguments? Wouldn't it have been enough just to say, Jesus is superior literally to everything. God spoke through him, therefore pay attention to him. Maybe. But what he's doing here is he's using a well-known Jewish tradition to strengthen his argument and highlight who Jesus is really is. The Jews had a tradition that angels were involved in giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And that's not explicit in the Old Testament. It's implied in passages like Deuteronomy 33. But the idea comes to light in the New Testament. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, just prior to his martyrdom, speaks of the law as delivered by angels. And Paul mentions it to the Galatians. He says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And we know that intermediary was Moses. So the converted Jews reading this letter would know exactly what the author is doing. He's setting up an argument from the lesser to the greater. And we'll see that when we get to Hebrews chapter 2, but here's a preview of what he is arguing. Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3. If the message declared by angels, that is the message declared by mere servants and messengers of God, if that proved to be reliable, and every transgression and every disobedience received just retribution, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That is the gospel that was spoken to us in these last days by God's only Son. That's where the author is going here. And he lays the foundation for that lesser to greater argument in verse 4, where he says that Jesus is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he builds on that foundation with seven Old Testament texts that he strings together like pearls. And this morning, we're going to look at four, the first four. Before we do that, though, I have to try, and this is risky, I have to try to show you the overarching structure of this section. And this section runs from verse 1 all the way down to verse 14. And we're going to be here for a few weeks, so I want you to see this so that as you study, you can be aware of how the author has structured his writing. This whole section has two parts, and it is written in a lovely parallel pattern. And this insight comes from uh, the late Hebrew scholar William L. Lane. I'm not smart enough to have noticed this myself, unfortunately. But here's what he shows. He shows that verses 1 through 4 form a confession. A confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Then verses 5 through 13 into 14 support the confession by showing that Jesus is superior to angels. And the order of the Old Testament text in verses 5 through 13 parallel the order of the confession in verses 1 through 4. Four. I won't go through each line of this table. For now, just notice that the ideas contained in verses 1 through 4 are rolled out in verses 5 through 13. For example, verse 2. It asserts that the Son is appointed heir of all things. In verses 5 through 9, you can find that idea developed and supported by five Old Testament texts. Then in verse 2, Jesus, the Son of God, is said to be the creator of the world. Verse 10 then unfolds that quote 
um, which in, in a quote from Psalm 102, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So we see the Son as creator once again, and so on. That's the parallel pattern of this section, and we'll use that for the next couple of weeks. Now, with verse 4, though, as the foundation, let's see how the author shows that Jesus is the Son, the only begotten Son of God, a name that is superior to that of angels. Verse 5 begins now with a rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In the English Standard Version, you'll see that it is a word-for-word quote. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It was written by King David, and it points to the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. And that's not an interpretation made up by Christians. Jewish interpreters recognized that even before the time of Jesus. And if you wonder about that interpretation of Psalm 2, I encourage you to take a look at Acts chapter 4, and you're going to see the early church interpret Psalm 2 and take those words and apply it directly to Jesus. In this psalm, though, King David paints a picture of a coronation. This is the crowning of a king. He seems to be looking back at his own coronation, maybe years before, and all the promises that God had given him, and then looking forward to the coronation of his son, the Messiah. And if that's the case, we should ask this question. When did that coronation happen? And this will help us understand this text. Was it at his birth, his baptism, the transfiguration, a lot of a lot of options are out there. When did God crown Jesus and declare him his name, my son? When did he crown him with the words, today I have begotten you, which should not be mistaken for the day of his birth, since those words were even used of David and have nothing to do with David's physical birth. This is a coronation so when was this fulfilled in Jesus? It was fulfilled when Jesus was exalted, when he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, when he was exalted above all kings as the king of kings. That's when he was crowned with those words. Paul tells us that in the sermon he gave at Antioch in Pisidia. Listen to this. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. And how did he fulfill it? By raising Jesus. And now listen to him support that claim from the Old Testament scriptures. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Those are the words of the coronation, if you will, of King Jesus. And they're lifted directly from Psalm 2, verse 7. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God and thereby appointed to be the heir of all things. 
So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is the Son of God. He has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high and given the name, My Son. That name is infinitely superior to angels. Jesus has been crowned or declared to be the Son of God, and thereby He is appointed the heir of all things. For indeed, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. So to Him be glory forever. Amen. And to answer the author's rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? The answer is none. Angels are not the royal heir, but Jesus is. Now, Old Testament text number two. It seems to support the same point. We're still in verse 5, answering the same rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? Now that's a quote from 2 Samuel 7, 14. Again, in the English Standard Version, it's a word-for-word quote. But here's the context. King David is nearing death, and he wants to build a house For the ark of God. But God sends a message. He speaks to David by the prophet Nathan. And here's what he says to King David When your days are fulfilled, we'll start in verse 12 and go through verse 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish. His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's our text I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, when, or who, I should say, was the son of David that would build a house for the ark of God? Well, that was Solomon. That's true. And that's the first level of fulfillment of this prophecy. But the ultimate fulfillment would be found in Jesus, King Jesus, the son of David, King of Kings, whose kingdom would truly be established forever and ever. That's what the angel declared to Mary. Remember that text from Christmas time? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is the Son of God, exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is infinitely superior to that of the angels. He is my Son, says God. I am His Father, which makes Him the heir of all things. So I ask, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son? Answer, none. Angels are not the royal heir. But Jesus is. Let's move now to Old Testament text number three. 
verse 6. And again, when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, what text is the author quoting here? Well, that is a good question and a very difficult one to answer. In most of your Bibles, the cross-reference says that he's citing Deuteronomy 32, 43, and that's likely. But if you look it up in your English Standard Version, you're going to notice that it doesn't quite line up. It says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. So your English Standard Version uses gods instead of angels. The problem is we don't know exactly which version of the Hebrew Old, tech, Old Testament text that the author is using here. It could be from this particular version of the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, it could be this. Rejoice, heavens, at once with Him, and let all the angels of God worship Him. The wording there is nearly identical, and it's a uh, good possibility. But some commentators think that the quote isn't even from Deuteronomy. They say he's quoting Psalm 97. And here's Psalm 97, verse 7, in the English Standard Version and in the Septuagint so that you can see the difference for yourself. Again, in the English Standard Version, it's gods, not angels, but it is a possibility that Hebrews is quoting Psalm 97 and not Deuteronomy 32. The Puritan John Owen argued for this in his massive seven-volume commentary on Hebrews. Others, though, have suggested that the author is combining Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 97. So, I, for one, am not sure, so... I just put an and or there and uh, leave you to study this on your own. It is a difficult question to answer. However, regardless of the exact verse or the exact version the author is using, the point of the author is crystal clear. There is no need to be confused about what he means. He is applying the Old Testament to Jesus and here he is stressing the fact that angels are not the object of worship. Jesus is. In fact, the angels themselves are commanded to worship Jesus. And that's the point. Angels are not to be worshipped. Jesus is. You can make that same point from the New Testament by just pointing to the fact that Jesus is worshipped, that he is worthy of worship, and angels themselves warn people, like John, not to bow down to them or worship them because they are merely fellow servants. You can see that in Revelation 22. So, Jesus is the Son of God, exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is infinitely superior to that of angels. So even angels are ordered to bow down and worship Him. Old Testament text number four. And this comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. We're in verse 7, though. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds 
and his ministers a flame of fire. And you can see the difference for yourself between the English Standard Version and the Septuagint. Uh, Again, the author seems to be using the Septuagint, and I include this for your own study so that when you look it up, you'll know why what you're seeing in the English Standard Version isn't exactly lined up. It's a different version or translation that he's using. Now, Psalm 104. This is a breathtaking description of the greatness and glory of God. Let me read just the first few verses so that you can see this Old Testament quote in context. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And here's our text. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. This is the greatness and the glory of your God. He is so great that he sits on his glorious throne and angels do his bidding. They are merely servants of this great God. That's not to say that these creatures aren't glorious. They are. They are glorious. They are powerful. They are blindingly brilliant, and they are terrifying. They are not the little chubby things with wings playing harps on clouds. They are big, powerful creatures that do the bidding of the Almighty. It was angels that struck down an army of 185,000 to rescue God's people from the hands of the Assyrians. It was angels that slaughtered 70,000 men of Israel because of the sin of David. It was a company of destroying angels that struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Nevertheless, as powerful and as awe-inspiring as in t- as, and as terrifying as these angels are, they are but creatures. They are merely God's servants. Not so the Son of God. He is not a creature. He is their creator. He is not merely a servant. Though a servant He is, He is not merely a servant. He is the Son of the living God. He's not a creature. He's the royal heir. He is the object of all worship, and he is infinitely superior to the angels that he created. So that's what I believe the author of Hebrews is doing with this string of pearls from the Old Testament. Now let me draw this to a close by circling back to where we started and then pressing in on at least one way this works in your life as a Christian. The author of Hebrews here is writing a word of exhortation to his brothers and sisters. His brothers and sisters are in danger of drifting away. 
like a boat that slipped anchor and is now headed toward the rocks. Long ago, he says, God spoke. And God spoke in many ways, including angels. But in these last days, God has spoken to you by Jesus, the Son of God, the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds this entire universe by the word of His power, the one who made purification for sins, and the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. It is as plain as the nose on my face that Jesus is far greater than angels. He has inherited a name that is infinitely superior to them. God declares, He is my Son. He is the royal heir of all things. He is the object of all worship. And this Son is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. None of that can be said of angels, but all of that is true of the Son of God. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question. Are you in danger of drifting away? The 40 million who left church over the past 25 years and never came back are a witness to the fact that there are things, even really trivial things, in this world that threaten to cut your anchor line and send you adrift. For some of you, it is the love of distractions. I'm preaching to myself now. I read that the average American spends somewhere around six hours a day on the internet, with two and a half hours of that dedicated to social media. But it's not just TikTok, YouTube, and Hulu that distract. It can be model trains or motorcycles. It can be music or books or friends or family. We're amazing people. We can make lovely distractions out of just about anything even good things like serving. So listen to the Son. Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Listen to the Son. Pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest your distractions cause you to drift away. For some of you, though, it's not distractions. It is the love of your stuff. 
your possessions that threaten to send you adrift. You are possessed by your possessions. They consume you. They eat up your time, your money, your energy, and most of your attention. Again, I urge you, listen to the son. He told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Listen to the Son. Pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest your love of possessions causes you to drift. Some of you aren't even enticed by distractions or stuff. You crave the approval of the people around you. You are willing to sell your soul just to be liked. Listen to the Son. He says through his servant Paul that if you are trying to please men, you are not a servant of Christ. So pay closer attention to what you have heard. Now those are just examples. But here's the core of the problem. Here's what each of those examples have in common. They are fundamentally misplaced and disordered affections of the heart. They are disordered loves. And what is the solution for a disordered affection? Again, I say, listen to the Son. The message that the Son of God reveals spoke most brilliantly, most gloriously, is the message of the cross. The author of Hebrews touched on this back in verse 3. He said that before Jesus was exalted, he made purification for sins. That's the work of the high priest. And we'll learn more about that later in this letter. But the universal need for purification comes from the reality that we are filthy sinners drifting swiftly toward our everlasting destruction. This kind of purification requires the shedding of blood, which is what the Son did on the cross for the sins of His people. Through His death, He destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the Son spoke, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This message is the good news. It is the gospel. And it is the thing that has the power to bring, it is the only thing that has the power to bring order to the chaos of your affections and give your soul what will truly and eternally satisfy. Thomas Chalmers, who lived in the late 18th, early 19th century, put this beautifully in a sermon that he preached on 1 John 2.15, which says, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here's what he said. The object of the gospel is both to pacify the sinner's conscience and to purify his heart. The best way of casting out an impure affection, that is, a strong, impure desire of the heart, is to let in a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what is the solution to your misplaced and disordered affections Whatever those might be, according to the author of Hebrews, it is the gospel, which alone has the power to force out inferior loves and and desires for inferior pleasures with a superior love and a superior pleasure. The answer is to look to the gospel of the glory of Jesus and behold the love of God for sinners put on gloriously, a glorious display at the cross and beholding the glory of the Lord to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is the expulsive power of a new affection that comes from the gospel. And that is the power of the gospel to transform you. Therefore, you must pay careful attention to the gospel unveiled to you by the Son of God who gave himself up for you. Let's pray.